You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you once more for bringing us together, for giving us this time together, for opening a space in our schedules, our usually busy schedules, I'm sure, uh, to be here, to be in your presence. Even though we're talking uh, a lot about physical health, Lord, we know that your whole idea is total health. And you want us to have that total, complete health experience. And that will only come, finally, when you return and you give that to us. But in the meanwhile, we pray that what we're studying, what we're talking about, will help us along that path so that we'll be prepared to meet you when you come to take your friends home. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we will, we will do this without the front uh, things for a while. And I will go quickly so that uh, we'll bypass that. Remember, we're doing everything here in, in the expectation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? This is, this is not... Uh, just physical health. We're looking at total health, and we need to know that Jesus is interested in our being where he is. He wants us to be where he is, not just physically. He wants us to be where he is, our minds, ourselves, to be like him. He wants us to have his character, and that he wants us to have a total health experience, a shalomic experience, where everything is, is, is functioning the way it was designed to function, the way it should be, everything working in harmony with each other as God designed it. So did you know the following? Did you know, uh, for instance, that sunlight is more than vitamin D? So when, when we hear about getting some sunshine, getting some sunlight, uh, it's not just because of vitamin D, and it's not just that we can replace the sunshine with a, with a pill. All right? Now, if you can't get the sunshine, of course, the vitamin D tablet works very well, right? Vitamin D3 in particular. Um, but uh, sunlight has also been shown to help in reducing the risk for various kinds of diseases, such as type 1 diabetes, such as multiple sclerosis, such as different forms of cancer, uh, colon cancer, breast cancer, and even some kinds of lymphomas. So don't just assume that because sunlight in excess can cause skin cancer, that you should avoid it at all costs. It, that it will not do you good, all right? So it's adequate amounts of sun exposure, not too much, right? Uh, next thing is about ultra-processed foods. I have uh, a slide on this again. And the issue is that ultra-processed foods in addition to all of the things that it does to your uh, intestines and, and how it's related to different kinds of uh, health conditions, it promotes something that we're going to be talking about, and that is inflammation. It promotes inflammation. And inflammation, by the way, is one of the ways in which we fight things. But inflammation in excess of what it's supposed to be actually causes disease, right? It's like uh, taking, well... I wanted to use a war example, but uh, I, won't, I won't do that. It's, it's just, it's more explosive. I, I use that. It's more explosive than, than we need to have it done, okay? 
So when we have this uh, chronic inflammation, this chronic uh, uh, messing up of our soup, this causes us to, to develop different kinds of diseases. And, uh, and part of, uh, of the things that uh, help producing that is when we have an overhang. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but um, I, I am developing one myself, so uh, doctor, heal thyself, right? <laughs> but, but the overhang is, is not really a good sign because the overhang actually increases the risk that you will have chronic inflammation, right? And this is, this is an issue. And, and the overhang may not be a large one, but the larger it is, the worse it is. But the good news is that the overhang is, uh, is something that can be tamed. You know, uh, I, I give stories about what happened in Lifestyle Center. We, we would have couples come, right? Uh, husband and wife, both overweight. The wife wants to go. She, she wants to get everything in order. Husband uh, comes along kind of for the ride. And, uh, and she is gung-ho about doing everything that we're, we're saying and we're teaching and whatnot. And he's kind of just uh, kind of going along. Okay, I'll go along to help her, right? Next thing you know, uh, we're done with uh, 12, 14, 15, 17 days. And he has lost a lot of weight and his overhang has become smaller. And she has only lost one or two pounds. And they wonder, why? Why is this? Okay. Well, in case you didn't know, men and women are different. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and the ladies, oftentimes, they hold on to, to the weight a little bit um, more uh, tenaciously than the men. But there is something else with this. If the man really was just doing this just because, you know, it's a lark. Okay, I do this. Easy come, easy go. <laughs> right? So he loses the thing there. In two, three weeks, he puts it back on. Right? But if his mind and her mind were made up and they would do what they had learned, it's only a matter of time those pounds will fade away. All right? That's how it works. Okay? So... So part of the big battle that we all have is the battle for the mind, myself included, as we go along and we're looking at this, uh, at this uh, tummy situation and the markers of inflammation. This will go back down in a little bit anyway. So here are some things that will help to uh, reduce that overhang. Uh, 150 minutes of walking per week uh, has been shown scientifically to help reduce uh, the, the tummy, the tricky tummy, right? Brisk walking, jogging, gardening, swimming, racket sports, high energy, short, high energy short burst uh, activity. And uh, there's a little, a little cartoon that I'd like to show you here. You know, many patients would say things like, doctor, I, I, don't, have, I don't have time to exercise. Well, uh, this cartoonist said, what fits your busy schedule better, exercising one hour a day or being dead 24 hours a day, right? Uh, the answer should be obvious. But you don't always have to do uh, all of this uh, strenuous exercise in order to get, to get benefit. This is going down again, but we will, we will find it. Uh -huh. No, they usually tape it, but um, that, isn't, that isn't doing So. If you're over 50, that's when the overhang really starts to, uh, to do its thing. 
Yeah, thank you. Excuse me. <laughs> it's, it's all right, it's working. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you're over 50, start moving, start doing some of the things that, that we're talking about. Commit to, to something, right? And put it into practice and you'll see you'll get, you'll get benefit over time. But how much time do you really need? You know, we were talking about it, uh, those eight minutes and so on. How about four seconds of exercise? What do you think about that? Four seconds. Okay, now this, this study was done under very controlled conditions. They had, they had a machine that allows individuals to use just about every muscle that is available in the body, right? So they were doing this thing and they did it for four seconds at a time, right? They did it for longer, shorter, 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 and what they found, that only getting down to, to only four seconds was able to produce a positive result. Four seconds of strenuous exercise, okay? So what does that look like? How are you gonna start? How about this? Do you think you can do this for four seconds? You think you can do that? Who wants to do it? Come on. Stand up, let's do it, let's do it. Come on, come on, let's do it. Four seconds, right? Who's gonna be our timer? I'll just count to four, all right? Ready, set, go. One, two, three, four, good. All right, there you go, all right? All right. Now, that's only using, yes, that's only using the upper body. All right? But you remember Father Abraham? <laughs> right? You had right arm, left hand, right? Right foot, left foot. Okay, so who wants to do that one? <laughs> so we do, we do a Father Abraham, right? You know, we do this, okay? Or if we use the big muscles uh, in the legs and in the hips, we do this. So you go, <laughs> people might think you're crazy. Don't worry about them. <laughs> it will help you. Now, if you do this, according to this research, now remember they had a special machine, so really what the researchers said, for, for us, since we don't have those machines, probably eight seconds would be better than four, and you have to do it so that it accumulates to about a minute a day, all right? So if you do eight seconds, let me see the mathematicians in this room. Eight seconds, how many times would you have to do that in a day to get one minute? About, so I would, oh, eight, okay. So you do this about eight times a day for eight seconds and you'll have a little bit extra, all right? Now, how difficult would that be to do? Come on. I'm sure you're feeling better already just thinking about it. <laughs> All right? So this, this becomes really easy. Now, this, it doesn't mean that this is the optimal exercise for you. What it's saying is it's easy for us to be able to do something, and we can start somewhere. All right? Other things that reduce inflammation besides exercise include avoiding processed foods, which we talked about before, reducing stress, no tobacco, and sufficient sleep. Okay, something that challenges many of us as well. 
But there are other things about what's going on in our heads that actually make a difference. In the past, uh, many uh, studies have shown that having negative thoughts and being depressed and sad and so on, these things increase inflammation, okay? But what was not shown until this particular study was that having positive emotions actually reduced the inflammation, okay? So having negative thoughts and so on, they increase inflammation, and you can counteract that by having positive thoughts, positive ideas, uh, and having a more joyous spirit. Remember the Bible says that a merry heart, what? Does good like medicine. And this is the scientific proof for this. We even know how it works. It works by changing our soup, our brain soup, okay? It works by changing the chemicals in our brains. So we end up with dopamine and serotonin and, uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and melatonin, and they increase the body's ability to fight inflammation and actually lowers the inflammatory response. Doing good also reduces the inflammation in the body. Doing good. And I have a comment, and I was listening to the last speaker. He was talking about doing good, right? Uh, it's as if, you know, we had coordinated things. But here's this one. The, the Amish, when they were being persecuted, there is evidence of Amish individuals who helped their persecutors. And in this particular uh, rendition of uh, a story of one of the Amish uh, martyrs by the name of Dirk Willems, he was persecuted, he was running, and his persecutor actually fell into a lake and he was about to drown. And this man went and pulled him out of the water. A few weeks later, that same man and his cohorts killed the man who helped them. I tell you, but Dirk Willems and others like him and what we are going to be called to do as well, to follow Christ's example of loving our enemies, there is a benefit. And it's summarized in this statement by Jim Elliott. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The aim for all of us is to get off of this planet alive and be with Jesus. Isn't that right? And to take as many people with us as possible. Why? Because he died for them too. If he loves them, we have to love them too. You see, the problem that we're going to talk about today is heart disease. And we're going to talk about it in a different kind of way. First, we'll talk about some of the scientific issues of some of the risk factors for heart disease, and then we'll get into uh, something else. Okay, so I'm going to try to go fast. We have, this says I have three hours and 52 minutes and 30 seconds. <laughs> Did you guys know that? <laughs> well, that's what the clock says. All right. So heart disease. You know, this we never, we never want to have to experience. This picture here. This is a picture, uh, high definition rendition 
of, of an arterial clot. This is that round thing that you see there like a donut, yeah, like a donut, <laughs> is a coronary artery. And that thing in the center is a clot. And this person died of a heart attack because one of the little, of those in, in, the, in that white fatty area, it's like a zit. It ruptured, caused a clot, and the clot went distally and blocked that artery. And blocking the artery blocks the blood. No blood flow to that part of the muscle. The muscle dies. When people die of a heart attack, it's not just the muscle dying that causes the problem. As the muscle dies, the rhythm of the heart goes haywire. And most people with a heart attack who die, they die of an arrhythmia. They die of a, of a bad rhythm that does not allow them to sustain blood flow and life. Okay? So this is a problem. And this may not always be appreciated the way it should. So in this cartoon, we have a situation of a gentleman who is oblivious to what is obvious, okay? He is in the jungle, and he had heard it's dangerous to be out there because of these giant mosquitoes. And so he's standing there, and he sends his, uh, his selfie and his text that says, I'm standing out in the woods, and I don't see the big mosquito problem everyone is talking about. Do you see the mosquito problem? <laughs> uh, by the way, this was his last entry. <laughs> High blood pressure is one of the risk factors for heart disease. And high blood pressure is something that can creep up on us. It should be taken seriously. The top number, the systolic blood pressure, is more of, uh, it has been much more studied and is more of an issue in causing uh, uh, heart attacks. But elevation in the blood pressure is not something to take as lightly as some of us might. There are risk factors associated with that, and we can see on the list here, and if you look at the pictures, I thought this was a very nice picture that uh, kind of uh, demonstrates some of the issues. Overweight, unhealthy diet, alcohol use. Alcohol use, can you believe that? Uh, and some people would tell you that alcohol is, uh, is good for the heart. Don't believe it, okay? There is no amount of alcohol that is beneficial to the human being, okay? Uh, uh, alcohol use, low physical activity, smoking, stress, uh, things like that, the whole, the whole list. Uh, men are more prone to high blood pressure than, than women, uh, but women are more prone to some other things. Even though, overall, uh, you might want to know this, uh, uh, women are healthier than men. I don't see any smiles here. Because it's just, it's just a... It's just a fact, okay? Women are healthier than men. Um, so don't try to change your gender just because of that, okay? All right. <laughs> These are the blood pressure levels uh, that, that uh, we look at statistically for where the danger comes. It, the green, of course, is, uh, is where things are good. Um, and... Uh, that number that we say is normal, 120 over 80 or less, okay? It can go much less than that. 
so long as you don't have symptoms associated with low blood pressure, right? The lower your blood pressure is, the better off you are, so long as it does not cause you symptoms, the low blood pressure, all right? Okay, so then we have yellow, 120 uh, to 129 over 80, and then we go up from there, we have uh, more or less orange color, and then uh, what, what you need to, uh, to pay attention to and you need to be aware, you go to the doctor immediately if your blood pressure is 180 uh, systolic or 120 diastolic, right? Diastolic is the lower number, 180 is the top number. The top number is generated when the heart is pumping. The blood is pumping out. And the diastolic or the lower number is when the heart is relaxing and filling. So that's why we have this. You want to try that? <laughs> it worked well in medical school uh, teaching students the, uh, the heart cells. Anyway, but you guys remember we were dealing with a model that, uh, that looked at you know, risk and risk factors. And I want to remind you that when we, when we make changes in our lives and we change our lifestyle, we're actually changing the risk. We're not changing the absolute issue of the disease. Uh, there are only a few people who have come off the planet alive so far, right? Everybody else has died, okay? And we die of things. And we die of something. So what we do is we reduce our risk. So we have, uh, for those who, who were not here, A, B, and C are risk factors, and then D, E, F, and G are unknown risk factors. We don't know that those things were around, and these things cause us to get sick. And the sinful world at the top is showing that the whole system that we are living in, the whole system is bathed in sin. Therefore, uh, the ultimate issue is that we have to take care of the sin problem if we're going to be restored to full wholeness, right? D does that make sense? Okay. But meanwhile, the elimination of sin from the, from the universe, that's going to come later. But God has given us instructions of things that we can do now that will set us on the right path, okay? The path to reduction and the path to having a more abundant life uh, even today. Okay. So, if we look at where the sin issue is, there's, there's the sin in the world, and then there's there, there are my sins, right? Or you can just call it your sins, all right? But we have our own sins, and these things contribute to the risks of disease. And then people go to conferences and seminars and camp meeting and whatnot, and they learn a little bit more, and they have this uh, ABC kind of idea that uh, imposes here. And what, what is it that, that affects how I'm going to relate to the risks that I have. Well, my attitude and my mindset may make a difference in how I see myself and how I see the risk that I have, okay? If I have a poor attitude or I have, you know, a, oh, poor me, this is, uh, there's nothing I can do uh, kind of mindset, then chances are I won't do very much to make any changes. These things, of course, can be changed. But they also affect our behavior, what we do. And, and what we think actually affects what we do. And of course, these things have consequences. And you put those three kinds of things together. There's more, but we'll just use ABC. Uh, these things affect 
how my sin, my own sin, allows me to deal with the risks that I know I have. Okay? And that's affecting you too. What you believe, what kind of mindset you have, what kind of outlook you have. Remember when we were talking about diabetes, the people who are most likely to get help and to do better are people who have something to live for, who understand, right, that their body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. These individuals, okay, all, th that same kind of idea affects any disease and any kind of risks that we have, okay? So one of the ways that we deal with things is we look at how we can prevent things, and what we want to do is to modify the risk factors, taking into account the things that we just talked about, the ABCs and whatnot. They affect the risks, and so we have primary prevention, that is, you know, you don't have the disease, you just know you have the risk, and you do something so that you don't increase your risk, and you might actually reduce your risk. That's primary prevention, so that the thing doesn't happen at all. Many people don't enjoy the idea of prevention, because most people believe, why should I spend time taking care of myself for something that I will never have? Because most people don't think that they'll get sick, believe it or not. Okay? Uh, you know, I've, I've had in the emergency room people come in, oh, pressure on their chest, they know they're having a heart attack, and they say, why? I had this one guy, uh, when I was living in, in, in Oklahoma, he came into the emergency room, actually he was a, a, a policeman, a sheriff. Uh, he came in, and just by looking at him, he was a heart attack waiting to happen. Just, just by looking at him. I had seen him before, uh, actually he's one of Dr. Nedley's patients that I had seen for Dr. Nedley, and I had told him and his wife <laughs> the things that you need to do, right? So we went through the whole, the whole issues, and I'm sure Dr. Nedley did that too uh, in the practice. And, uh, but a few weeks later, he comes into the emergency room, and he knows he's gonna die. He didn't die, by the way, okay? He knows he's gonna die, he's lying there, and he's holding his chest, and he's sweating bullets, okay? He retches a little bit, because that's what happens with a heart attack, okay? He's very uncomfortable, and he asked me, Doctor, why is this happening? And I say, well, let's not deal with the why now. Let's keep you alive and we'll deal with the why later, right? We're gonna work on this. We're in this together, right? Two days later, after his tent was placed, <laughs> okay, he had, uh, after his tent was placed, he is in the intensive care unit and they bring by his, uh, the dietitian comes by with a list of things that he, now he can have breakfast the next day. You know what he chose for breakfast? <laughs> bacon and eggs, <laughs> okay? He wanted bacon and eggs for breakfast. I, I, I got into his room and I said, you wanted to know why? <laughs> this is part, part of the reason why. He also um, had hypertension that was uncontrolled. He also uh, drank about 102 cups of coffee a day. Yeah. He hardly had uh, much space to, to do anything else. He, he, he was a high-strung, just uh, kind of guy. Anyway, so we worked, we worked with him, and I, I, I can tell you, uh, within six months, he was a different man. Uh, the heart attack really helped. <laughs> 
No, it, 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 he had a wake-up call, and he said, I'm going to get serious about this, and he made, he made changes. All right. Okay, sometimes we need that. We're not sick enough. Uh, so, some of the therapeutic interventions, and tomorrow we're going to deal a little bit more with this. We're not going to have a lot of time, but we'll, we'll work on this. Uh, we can use treatments for the disease, and the whole world is oriented towards the disease. I, I'm sorry. We, we don't have a healthcare system. We have a disease care system. The whole world is done like this, okay? Your insurance is not a health care insurance. Your, your insurance is disease care insurance, okay? It's only over the last few years that they've introduced the idea of wellness visits, okay? And this ha came about with people kicking and screaming against it. We had all these beautiful codes in, in medicine for being able to code these things, but you just didn't get paid for it. And so who would do it if you're not going to get paid for it, right? Okay. So this was part of the problem, and it still is part of the problem. So we look at uh, how we treat disease, and, uh, and good doctors don't treat disease. Did you know that? We treat people. And the people may have a disease or they may not. Okay? But here are the things that are used. Natural therapies, you guys know about that, synthetic medications, surgery, and what is sometimes called mystical medicine. That's where we use the spiritistic kinds of things that uh, are dubious, and some of them actually uh, forbidden in the Bible. Okay? So what do these things look like? Well, the natural therapies, oftentimes people direct them to the disease. And you say, I have this disease, I will use this remedy. Have you heard that before? Yeah. And so oftentimes at camp meetings and things like that, people, ask, people will come and ask me, depending on what the, what the conference is and what the context is, they'll say, doctor, I have so-and-so. What is good for that? Why would you ask me what is good for that? Well, the reason why people would ask what is good for that is because we're all very much alike. If you can find one magic bullet that will take care of all of your health problems, would you not take it? Right? And if it's something really easy. And by the way, don't tell me to take it every day. <laughs> Give it to me once, okay? <sighs> and I'm free. I'm good to go uh, for the next 10, 20, 30 years, okay? This is what people would really like to have happen. But this is not usually <laughs> uh, the case, and therefore, uh, even when we use natural therapies, it means that we have th there's other things that go along with them. Synthetic therapies, synthetic medications, and so on. When rational and when indicated, these things are useful. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Surgery. Well, we don't just go around cutting people. When surgery is necessary, it is a lifesaver, right? Uh, this fellow that I was just talking about, um, if it weren't for the intervention uh, that we had to put a catheter in there and, and open up his arteries and put these artificial stents in there, uh, he would not be alive long enough to have made changes in his life and have another opportunity to accept Jesus Christ. Okay? And then, of course, we have the mystical uh, things. And whenever we talk about mystical medicine and mystical things, it's people who are saying the physical is not enough. There's something else. And much of medicine, up until recently, has overlooked all of the other things. It's like you have this disease, we're going to use this thing to treat that disease. As opposed to treating people. And people are holistic. We are physical, mental, emotional. We think and we do. We are social beings. 
The same illness affecting two people can have completely different responses, not just because of the activity of the disease, but because of their social situation. I remember uh, when I was a, a boy, I enjoyed uh, tennis a lot, and Stan Smith, any of you old enough to remember Stan Smith? He, he as a youngster, I think he was 17 or 18, he won the US Open. He was headed for the big time. And he ended up with a problem that ended his career. He ended up with a problem called tennis elbow. Okay? Now, if you have tennis elbow, it's inconvenient. When Stan Smith got tennis elbow, it was the end of his career, end of his livelihood. So the same illness, the same condition, for one person could be devastating for another person. It's just an inconvenience, okay? So, so the, the, the mystical folks, right, tend to look at, okay, what else is happening with the individual? What's happening with them socially? What's happening with them in other, in other areas? Okay. So what people have attempted to do is to look for uh, the things that increase the risk of certain kinds of diseases. And if we can find those things, then if we can modify them, if they're modifiable, then they would be able to decrease the risk and the person can live a longer, happier, healthier life, okay? So here is one study that was done looking at, uh, at genetic factors for dealing with high blood pressure, primary high blood pressure. And I need to mention this, uh, and that's why I put in this slide as well. With high blood pressure, there are two kinds of high blood pressure, right? There is one kind that is definitely associated with some other disease. So the person has this disease, it causes the blood pressure to go high. The disease itself causes another pro whatever other problems, but the high blood pressure now causes its problems. You get the idea? All right. So how do you treat high blood pressure when it's caused by another disease. What do you think? You treat the other disease, very good. So if we treat the other disease, then the high blood pressure goes away. You get the idea? This is called secondary hypertension because it's secondary to something else. You treat the primary thing and the high blood pressure goes away. Now it would have been, I, I guess I should say nice, but uh, it would have been easier for us if the people who have high blood pressure today we could all identify a very specific thing, we treat that and, and then blood pressure goes, comes, comes back to normal. But that's not quite how it is. It's only about 5% of the individuals or less who we would see in practice who are in this room who have high blood pressure has secondary hypertension. That's a small number, right? The majority have what is called primary hypertension or essential hypertension. And it's not essential that you have hypertension, by the way. <laughs> it's just, a, a, it's not a misnomer in English. It's just how it was translated from French. French is uh, essential, which means it, you can't find any other reason for it, right? But it is a poor description of what it is because today we know about the things that induce that pressure to be high. Okay? And we are able to attend to some of those, and this list here has them, and we saw that list earlier, you know, with the overweight, sedentary lifestyle, and so on. But this one uh, was done in a very scientific 
set of trials looking at things like high triglycerides, okay, looking at things like high body mass index or increased weight, increased fat, okay, uh, HDL cholesterol, if the HDL cholesterol is low, then this increases your risk of having high blood pressure. You get the idea? So you can look at these risk factors and someone like you or me uh, can look at what your profiles look like and say these things indicate that I'm more likely to have high blood pressure. And if I have uh, the likelihood of having high blood pressure, I also have an increased risk of having a heart attack. Do you see how we're following this, right? Increased risk of high blood pressure, increased risk of heart attack, increased risk of dying of heart disease. Hmm? All right. High blood pressure doesn't only cause heart attacks, it causes something just as deadly as heart attacks, which is called congestive heart failure. Anybody knows about congestive heart failure? Yeah, that's where the heart is not able to pump in the usual uh, efficient manner, and the person essentially drowns in their own secretions. Okay? It is not a, it's not a nice situation. Unfortunately, many people don't think or don't take congestive heart failure as seriously as they should. And high blood pressure is a very high predictor of congestive heart failure. Okay? But you might say, well, doctor, if, if we know all of these things about uh, causal risk factors and potential causal risk factors, and we can do something about it, why is it that people still have high blood pressure? Well, because, you see, that's not the whole story. We know that there are things that can happen <laughs> at birth, there are genetics issues, there are things while the baby is in uterus, we talked about this before, right? All of these things can affect what is happening as the fetus develops, and this predisposes the individual to have high blood pressure later on in life. Okay? So you may have high blood pressure, and you may say, but nobody in my family has high blood pressure. And I, I, I don't eat a lot of salt, and I'm not overweight. And all of these things, why is my pressure still high? Well, you know, you were there in utero, but you weren't there. You don't know what happened. You don't know what happened during your, your mom's uh, gestational period. You have no idea. Therefore, give some leeway. There are things that happen to us, that happen with us, that uh, we don't know that affect us later on in life and cause us to have different kinds of illnesses. And in this case, we have something that's happening in the, in the, in the womb. But it goes even deeper than that because it's not just what's happening with the mom, but also what could be happening with your dad. Okay? Yeah. Uh, dads have a part to play in this too. <laughs> and the issues with how dads health is around the time that he is producing the sperm. You, you know, we are fantastic human beings, everybody in this room. Do you know why? Your dad and my dad produced over 100,000 sperm. And one of those beat all the others and made you. Think about that. No, you guys aren't impressed. <laughs> uh, 
So you have, you have survivability <laughs> in, your, uh, in your genes, okay? Because it's, it's, it's the one that won, all right? Out of this 100,000, and you're it. Okay, now, but how dad was living affected the quality of the sperm. Yeah, think about that. Now, how does that work for you? Now, you may say, well, I'm not planning to have any other kids. I'm too old or whatever, right? But you have kids, you have grandkids. You need to let them know that how they live can affect what is going to happen in the next generation, okay? That's, that's your responsibility now that you have this information. And what then happens? If you take all the people with high blood pressure, we can say that about 95% of them have this primary hypertension, and only 5% have the secondary, and if you go to the doctor, the doctor will treat you like which one? Primary or secondary? What do you think? Primary, right? Unless the doctor has uh, some indication from the history that you have or how you look or so on, uh, more than likely, he or she would say, it's primary, okay? If, on the other hand, you think that you may have secondary high blood pressure, then please let your doctor know, okay? There are certain things that, that will do that, and I'm not going to go through a list, but, um, but if, you, if you have any suspicion, you talk to your doctor. All right. Now, looking at that, we can say from the people with primary hypertension, or 95%, if we look at the people with the secondary hypertension, or 5%, the treatments are usually pretty clear-cut. It's usually some kind of a, of a tumor or something like that. Some, uh, one of the famous ones is something called a pheochromocytoma. So we find that, we take it out, and the person's blood pressure comes back to normal, and we say, that's wonderful. Or it might be an endocrine problem like thyroid disease, whether hyperthyroidism or hypothyroidism. Both of them are associated with, uh, with, uh, with high blood pressure. And it might be an anatomic problem. Sometimes people have, uh, usually we find this in kids, it's something called coarctation of the aorta. The, the, the big blood vessel coming from the heart is narrowed, right? So these individuals have high blood pressure in the upper extremities, but normal blood pressure in the lower extremities. Some other people, uh, and particularly women in their 40s, they may have uh, a narrowing of the arteries going to the kidneys. And if that happens, then that causes the blood pressure to go up. Uh, we get in there, we use a stent, we open that artery up, blood pressure comes back to normal, okay? So th these things we usually can take care of uh, surgically or, or in some cases uh, medically, and that takes care of it. But it leaves 95% of people with high blood pressure. And those 95% of people with high blood pressure, there are some of them that are sensitive to lifestyle because the problem that they have is a lifestyle problem. And there are others, it's not the lifestyle, it's other issues that are involved, like what happened in the uterus, what happened uh, in their genetics, etc. And if we look at that, we would see that we have lifestyle-sensitive individuals and we have lifestyle-resistant primary hypertension. I'm thinking of chronic pain. Chronic yes. pain as an indicator, for, I mean, that can be implicated too. With it can be. So many have those issues today. That's right. Okay, so, I mean, we have, we have multiple things that can, that can affect what's happening with our, with our blood pressure, things that will cause an increase in our inflammation. These things also can increase the blood pressure. Now, here's the thing. If we were to look at percentages, I know of no 
uh, full study that has done this. This is out of uh, my experience and others uh, like me who, who use this kind of classification because we're in the, in the business, if you will, of helping people to reverse their problems. Uh, we believe it's somewhere between 20-25% of people have resistant high blood pressure, resistant to lifestyle changes, and the other 75% or so have uh, sensitive, lifestyle sensitive. So, uh, if you happen to have a lifestyle sensitive high blood pressure, you make some changes in your life, your blood pressure comes down to normal, and you say, wow, that was really, really good. Now, you might then tell everybody else, you need to change your lifestyle and do this, and your blood pressure will come down to normal. Is that what I'm saying? No. no. Only if you're in that category, right? That might be the majority, but it's not everybody. So we're left with this group of people who have high blood pressure. They're doing everything that they know, everything that we say. They're doing everything right. As a matter of fact, there's a sub-profile of these individuals, and I'm going to tell you, uh, lovely people, but hard to work with, okay? Because they insist, they would say, doctor, I am doing everything, and my blood pressure is still up. I'm doing everything. You say, don't, I, I don't eat any salt. You say, I, I exercise, I, I, I run 15 miles a day. Yeah. Oftentimes, they're skinny as whips, right? But they're often also high-strung. They also often have medical charts that are this thick. Right? Oftentimes, they have constipation. It's just an observation, right? And they don't want to take medication. That's why their charts get this thick. Because they try everything under the sun. And I'm telling you, for these individuals, they need to take medication. They need to take medication. Because the side effects and the adverse effects of the medication is often far, far less than the likelihood of their dying of a heart attack or a stroke. So you weigh the risk and the benefit. Many of these individuals, after they understand what I'm telling you, and usually it takes about three or four times, and several different doctors telling them the same thing for it to come to that, but they finally get it. They relax. They take the lowest possible dose, which is what we always recommend anyway, the lowest possible dose that will have a beneficial effect. They get their blood pressure down. And I wish I could say they live happily ever after. But, uh, but that's, that's what it will take. It, it, sometimes it takes medication. And, and how, I, how I deal with it is I say these individuals have, uh, uh, they, they get to an insight that many others don't get because they see the bigger picture. That sometimes we need something else, okay? Sometimes we need something else. Now, why is it so important to get the blood pressure under control? Well, if we look at the systolic blood pressure, which is the, the big one I told you about, the top number, 
Uh, if you can reduce that, that uh, blood pressure by just two millimeters of mercury, right? So somebody is uh, 140 over 90, and you reduce the top number to 138, you will have a 6% reduction in strokes, a 4% reduction in heart disease, and a 3% reduction in total mortality across the population. That means three dads who will be around for Christmas that wouldn't have been if the blood pressure wasn't taken care of. Does that make sense? So we want to be able to shift that curve for the whole population from one to the other. And how do we do this? We have ways, scientifically proven, and the expected response. One is physical activity. How does that sound to you? So I'm going to see some of you, before you go to bed tonight, doing this. <laughs> All right. Okay, physical activity. If you start on a physical regimen, you can, uh, you can expect to have a reduction in your blood pressure if you're not on a physical regimen already. Okay? If you look at eating better, and the one that is uh, scientifically shown is the DASH diet, I have a whole other talk about the DASH diet versus uh, what the Seventh-day Adventist uh, total vegetarian diet looks like. Uh, the, the diet that they compared, the, I'll, I'll say it, the diet that they compared the DASH diet to, which was a vegetarian diet, was not a vegetarian diet that I would recommend to anybody. So uh, it was not a good comparison. But nonetheless, the DASH diet is the one that is, uh, that is useful. Um, the dietary sodium restriction, not everybody is sensitive to salt, but, uh, but those who are, it makes a huge difference. Then, of course, uh, th this says, because it was produced by... Uh, by the regular scientists, uh, moderate alcohol consumption. We now have changed that. It's not moderate alcohol. It's no alcohol consumption, all right? Because alcohol increases uh, the blood pressure. So you can expect if someone is drinking and they stop drinking that uh, they will get a two to four millimeters of mercury reduction in their blood pressure. Weight loss. For every uh, uh, 10 kilograms of weight loss, you can expect a drop in blood pressure by five to 20 uh, millimeters of mercury, okay? And stress reduction. You help somebody reduce their stress. Now, how do you reduce your stress? Remember we said the only people who don't have stress are dead. They're in a box, okay? So how do you reduce it? Uh, the way we uh, recommend ultimately for stress reduction is to give your problems over to the one who can handle every problem, right? This is the ultimate uh, solution. People who smoke, they stop smoking. So I tell people, if you drink, stop drinking. If you don't drink, don't start. If you smoke, stop smoking. If you don't smoke, don't start, okay? Don't inhale what other people are doing either, okay? And if we look at the risk factors, there are different ways of looking at that, and there are some conventional risk factors, and there are some non-conventional risk factors. And the non-conventional, non-traditional risk factors include psychosocial issues and stressors and whatnot, and that brings us to a form where anyone can uh, get an estimate of what their heart disease risk is. I'm not going to go through this form. Uh, it will be in uh, Vicki Griffin's office. If you would like to have a copy of this to take the test for yourself, please uh, 
get in touch with her office and you'll be able to, uh, to take the test. Now, remember, this is just an estimate, okay? It doesn't have everything. And one of the things that it doesn't have is what we're going to talk about now, okay? The uh, Lifestyle Heart Trial was done by Dean Ornish. This was published first in 1991, uh, where he looked at people with coronary artery disease to see if their heart disease could actually be reversed, okay? Now, Seventh-day Adventists have been involved in this for years and years, but we never published anything about it. This guy, he published. Here's what, what, what happened. There were, there were patients who the doctors had said, there's nothing more we can do for you, right? There's nothing more we can do for you. That's what made it ethical for him to say, let's try something else. You get the idea? Because nobody would say, if we have treatment, you go and try this cockamamie idea of using diet and exercise and whatever, silly. You, you know, give the person the medication, give them the surgery, get the thing done, right? So when there's no more medication to use, no more surgery to use, okay. So they allowed him to do it. It was a small study originally, uh, and what he did was he, he followed what we teach, diet and exercise. Now, he did not want to use a total vegetarian diet for his personal reasons. What he used was a total vegetarian diet with a little bit of chicken, <laughs> okay? Once a week, <laughs> they had a little piece of chicken, and it was like the size of, you know, half of your finger, that kind of thing, right? So, so he, he could say it was not a total vegetarian diet, <laughs> all right? Um, he also gave, gave them a little piece of chocolate, right? So this was not an Adventist study. <laughs> okay. Uh, and he was looking at atherosclerosis. Now, atherosclerosis is the term that we use for hardening of the arteries, okay? Can you say that word, atherosclerosis? Atherosclerosis, hardening of the arteries, okay? So he was looking to see whether the arteries, the hardening of the arteries could be reversed. And what he checked against these people, he had them on this particular diet and this particular lifestyle, and he checked them against what the American Heart Association said is what we should do for people with heart disease, okay? Obviously, this was a, a non-politically correct uh, situation. And so, let's see what happened, okay? People who were the control subjects, that is, people who had heart disease who were, who were on the American Heart Association diet, their problem, the amount of stenosis, the amount of blockage that they had, increased by almost 30% over the course of the study. So here they were, they were using a therapy, an approach, but they were getting sick. Are you following what I'm saying? All right. Now, if they were not on any therapy, they may have been even sicker. But the therapy that they were using still allowed them to progress almost 30%. However, those who went on this strange, strange regimen of diet and exercise, <laughs> look at what happened. They had a decrease by about 8% of the blockage. And that was enough to get rid of the symptoms of all of these patients. They had no more chest pain. Amen? Amen? No more chest pain. 
What else? They followed them for five years. Now you need to understand, these individuals had been given up on by the medical community. They were going to be dead within a year. He followed them for how long, I said? Five years. What does that mean? They were still alive, okay? <laughs> right? He looked, and the further out they got, the longer they were on this regimen, the better they were compared to those who were on the American Heart Association diet, okay? And if you look at this, now once they added the magic drug that they tell everybody they're supposed to be on, which are called statins, if you look at the comparison, these are the people who are on the American Heart Association diet with no statins. It's getting worse. If you look at the people who were taking statins and on the American Heart Association diet, it wasn't quite as bad. And if you look at the people who were on the Ornish diet or the, uh, or the lifestyle approach, well, what do you see? They're doing better. Decrease in disease as opposed to increase in the disease. And these are the statistical things. But there was a catch. Not everybody did that well. Those who adhered to it more had greater results. And those who did not adhere to it so much, they had lesser results. In other words, the people who embraced this and said, okay, let's go. I have nothing to lose, I'm gonna do this. Those individuals actually did the best. Those who went at it kicking and screaming and, oh, I wanna have this, right? Uh, they didn't do quite as well. Are you following what I'm saying? Are you hearing what I'm saying? Are you applying what I'm saying? <laughs> okay. Let him who knows well to do well do better, right? Uh, this was taken not from the Ornish study. This was actually taken from Esselstyn, who had a similar result. Uh, what you see here is uh, on the left in 1987, that was uh, a, a blockage that was decreasing you can tell how much flow is going by how white the artery is, okay? So you'll notice that there's a spot where that arrow is in 1987 where it's not quite as bright white as everywhere else. It's because there isn't as much dye going through there. If you look in uh, 1992, you'll see that that area now is bright white, which means that there's more blood flowing there, more dye flowing there, and we can see it better, okay? This is another one uh, with blockage. It's a long blockage. You see it's you know, uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, later on, a few years later, by staying on the program, right, this individual was able to show that kind of, of improvement. Now this one, this is particularly interesting because this is, this is sometimes what we call a widow maker. Uh, you can't really stent that. It's, it's too tight, too close. And um, if somebody has a big blockage there, it usually damages so much of the heart that they die. We call it Widowmaker for that reason, okay? This person had an inoperable kind of, uh, of, of lesion. They went on, on a reversal program, right, which is diet and exercise and stress management, and lo and behold, this is what happened. This is a surgeon who uh, basically what he did was uh, operate on people's hearts and whatnot until he was found to have this lesion himself. 
This is from Esselstyn's uh, program. That guy was uh, a physician at the Cleveland Clinic. And he decided, okay, I'm going to do what Esselstyn was saying, right? So he did not have the bypass surgery. He didn't do any of those things. He went on Esselstyn's program. And lo and behold, this is what it looked like afterwards, okay? Made a believer out of him, right? Here are some others before and after, okay? We can show you a lot, but here's the kicker. What can be done? By going on this program, we can reestablish the blood flow. So, so where we had a blockage before or a diminish in flow, we now can reestablish good flow, good blood going to the heart muscle. We can improve the function of the lining cells of the blood vessels, which are very important for our total health. Okay? That's where inflammation, by the way, affects most, those lining cells. We can improve the function of the muscle of the heart. Okay? Wonderful. We can also facilitate some regression of the, of the plaque that blocks, right? Not a lot, we can't get rid of all of it, but we can decrease the amount of blockage that is there from the plaque itself, okay? But there are some things that we cannot do, and here are them. Here are they. One, we cannot revive the dead muscle of the heart. If somebody had a heart attack and that muscle is dead, we can't revive it, right? So, so changing your lifestyle is not a panacea. It doesn't cure everything. It takes care of what it can take care of, okay? It, it cannot eliminate the fibrous, thick plaque that is there. You'll always see that. The person will die with that there, right? And it also does not rewire the heart electrically so that the arrhythmias and so on that the person may have developed, they may still need to be treated for the arrhythmias. Am I making sense? So it doesn't cure everything, but it takes care of the vast majority of the situation. And I, I think my time is up, is it? Okay, I think my time is up. Uh, th there's, there's something else that I want, to, I want to mention, and in order to do it uh, well, we, we'll have to postpone it until tomorrow, because we need about 15 minutes uh, to get to this point that I'd like to make, right? We're dealing here with hardening of the arteries. But tomorrow, we'll deal with what's behind the hardening of the arteries. You don't want to miss tomorrow, okay? Let's stand and have a word of prayer, and let's see. Can we have somebody from the back pray for us today as we leave? Some volunteer, just raise your hand and Vicky will give you the microphone. Okay, thank you. Our wonderful Father in heaven, we're so grateful, Lord, for the presentation today. and We're grateful that you are our creator and you are our recreator. Lord, and you've given us wisdom. So we thank you, we ask for blessings, we ask for good health, we ask for the strength and the courage to do what we need to do. Lord, and we can trust you with the rest. So bless us now in Jesus' name, amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org audio22 
or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.